Hello and welcome to Riffs on Riffs. I'm Joe Watson. I'm here with my co-host, Toby Braswell. What is up, Toby? Dude, you can't jump in like that. Like what? Like like nothing has happened. I mean, this isn't double dutch. There's no way we can use the same intro as if the last 18 months have been business as usual. This is like Denise Huxtable just left for college. I mean, we're in a different <laughs> world now. And with that being said, I feel like we should change things up a bit. Oh, okay. All right. You know what? You are so right, my friend. So what do you say we we take a fresh look at Rips? You okay. know, this, as you said, this whole pandemic nonsense has it's given us a lot of time to reflect. It's also given us an opportunity to dive deeper into the fascinating stories that connect the dots between music past and present. A fresh look. Mm. Moving forward. Yes. Onward and upward. Mm-hmm. Happily ever after. Yeah. We're moving on up. <laughs> Happy little trees. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I was with you to the last one, but... Uh, Regardless, rest in peace, Bob Ross. Well, it's never a bad time for happy little trees. Let's paint a new Riffs picture for the listeners. We'll start with a musical savant with a vision and a dark side, a brilliant concept album ahead of its time, add in teenage musicians with otherworldly talent, owning their chops on the road, meeting Elvis, splitting their time between posh hotels and the backs of U-Hauls, and throwing a trip to jail through no fault of their own. I'll tell you what, after saying that description, it really sounds like a mashup of every Disney movie ever made outside of the Elvis part. Hmm. What about Blue Hawaii? That feels like it could have been an El- Anyway. So, <laughs> all right. So what if this whole thing that you laid out for us resulted in an epic record hmm. that has been sampled by hip-hop royalty, including, ready, Diggable Planets, Nas, Eric B. and Rakim, Busta Rhymes, Kanye, Jay-Z, and Kendrick Lamar, just to name a few. Now let's throw in a sad plot twist. What if these amazing talents never made a dime off of their own music? And what if the general public has never even heard of them? Well, then I would say you are talking about 24 Karat Black, my friend. Yes, sir. And in this four-episode series of Riffs on Riffs, we'll be digging deep into the history of the band and their incredible 1973 album, Ghetto's Misfortune's Wealth. Well, the tales behind this group and that record are proof that life sometimes is stranger than fiction. And we're going to go right to the source to uncover all of the amazing stories. Well, that's right. We will interview Zach Schoenfeld, author of the 33 and a Third, Ghetto's Misfortune's Wealth, about 24 Karat Black, and their landmark album that everyone has heard but not heard of. But wait, wait, there's more! Yes, we also had the distinct pleasure of interviewing 24 Karat Black band members, Princess Hearn, Neombi Steele, and Jerome Derrickson, and the late, great Larry Austin's wife, LaDonna. The stories they shared with us, well, we'll let you hear them yourself. Including the stories that have never been told before. Till now. <laughs> We're going to need to get you on CNN or something. Maybe CNN Plus? No, <laughs> well, that, well, that, 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 wah, wah. not anymore. Well, somebody tell Jack Taper uh, to watch his back. That's yeah, all I'm saying. Yeah, well, you heard the man call my agent. <laughs> You're also going to hear from Jeff Kolath, the executive director of the Stax Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. Riffs on Riffs is a podcast that goes in-depth into the art of sampling, revealing the surprising connections between present and past songs and the untold stories about the bands that have shaped the music industry. 24 Karat Black is no exception. Having been sampled over a hundred times, you'd think that this band would have gained more popularity during its time. Unfortunately, 
just like so many others, that was not the case for this band. Now, whether it was because of the collapse of Stax Records, the band's record company, or its music was just ahead of its time, the band never gained enough traction during its lifetime to achieve true stardom. Still, its legacy lives on in the 100-plus songs that sampled it, including Rebirth of Slick, Who Like That by Dickable Planets, Can I Live by Jay-Z featuring Memphis Bleak, and The Heart Part 4 and Fear by Kendrick Lamar. But before we get into all of that, let's start at the beginning. So the beginning in this case would start with a young band out of Cincinnati called the Ditalians. A little 12-piece outfit. Yeah, 12-piece outfit, man. That was playing the high school prom circuit. So, man, that's like more people than were at the prom, I think, in a lot of these places. (laughs) Anyway, eventually they made their way up to that place up north to play a frat party. I appreciate you calling it by the correct name. Now, but for those who are not fans of the Ohio State University, we should probably clarify that you are referring to the University of Michigan. Hmm. Hey, hey, Tobe, what time is it? Man, we're in the middle of a show. What what does that have to do with anything right now? Well, I I have a very important public service announcement to make based on the current time. Well, it is currently 12.52. Okay, thank you. Well, as an important reminder to our listeners, it is currently 12.52. And Michigan still sucks. <laughs> O-H. I-O. All right, back to the Italians. One of their singers was a teenager named Princess Hearn. And after talking with her on several occasions, I can say confidently that her name fits. Her life was filled with challenges, and where others might have become bitter, she managed to press on in the face of adversity. She was a talented teenager when she was discovered in Cincinnati and would become a stalwart member of 24 Karat Black. She also had a very personal relationship with the band's founder and visionary, Dale Warren. Let's hear what she had to say about how she came to join the group that would become 24 Karat Black. Well, it was the Dot Titans before we became 24 Karat Black. And I joined the group. The Dot Titans was a popular, you know, group in the community. My sister and three other girls, I was in junior high, they were in high school, and they was going to do this talent show. Okay, so we got together and got this group together. We was like the Supremes, okay? And I was singing Aretha Franklin, Respect. And so the Dottaians was the group that was going to play for us in this talent show. So we really bombed the the talent show, went over great. And then the group, their manager was interested in the girls, you know. They wanted us to join the Dottaians because they wanted the girls group. But they just wanted me and then one of my sisters. And then my sister, P. Hand, she was in 24 Karat Black at one point. She put her foot down, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't have her unless you take us. You know? That's right. <laughs> All or nothing. All this or like nothing. A, like a Cinderella situation going exactly, on. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly what it was. Exactly what it was. And so we joined the uh, Dottaians and we were playing and singing at proms and we were singing Ruth Franklin, Diana Ross. In that name, I love, you know, we were really, really good. Man, just in that little snippet right there, you can hear how amazing Princess's voice is. Her work on Ghetto Misfortune's Wealth is epic. No doubt. Princess is a generational talent. Another vocalist from 24 Karat Black was Niambi Still. Now, Niambi is an artist through and through. She didn't have the voice that Princess has, but she definitely had the hunger to make it in the music industry. That hunger was the reason that she made some tough decisions when she was younger. When we talked to her, I could still hear that hunger in her voice. 
I still hear the drive to be successful in the music business after all these years. Niambi joined 24 Karat Black for their second iteration and has this to say about that experience. Their first album came out and, you know, I wasn't with the group. I didn't meet them until much later in 73. I was doing theater in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I was working with uh, two theater groups there. And one was called Black Art. You know, I was also a dancer, modern dancer. I had two little children. So I was just doing, you know, Saturday workshops, things like that. Later on that year, there was going to be a big convention in Indianapolis. They were going to have Nikki Giovanni, Shirley Chisholm, and this band from Stax Records called 24 Karat Black. So I was part of the committee to welcome the speakers, and I had to write a speech to uh, welcome Nikki Giovanni to Indianapolis. So I wrote that speech, and that got me, you know, into the the event, which was a big dinner, and 24 Karat Black was like the dance band. And so I uh, met them, you know, after all the speaking and all that, and they were playing the music. And so on a break, I just went backstage and started talking to people. You mentioned that Niambi didn't have the voice that Princess does. I mean, and who does? But we want to be clear. Niambi is a phenomenal talent in her own right, but she would be the first to admit that fact. Listen, nobody could touch Princess. Can't nobody touch her today. Her voice is amazing. And she scared me. I was like, oh my God. I would never sing like this. I'll never, you know, I was never trying to get her spot. Well, it's pretty apparent why the Italians wanted Princess to join the band. Shortly after joining, her older brother, Clarence Campbell, introduced the Italians to a man named Dale Warren, who will later become an instrumental part of the band and all of their lives. I'm just really glad they changed their name. Why are you saying that, man? You don't like the Italians? Look, I have an issue with it, but apparently the ghosts and the machines of artificial intelligence do. How so? All right, so we interviewed the band members and author Zach Schoenfeld and others for this series, right? So, well, we had all those interviews transcribed so we could access them in print form as we put together the show. As you might imagine, the Ditalians was apparently a little bit difficult to decipher. So I'm going to share some of the interesting names that were transcribed instead, and you tell me if you'd be okay with being in a band with this name. You ready? Hit me. Okay. First one is obvious. It'd just be the Italians. Yeah, that's it's fine. Not, yeah, the Titans. That sounds fun. Titans. Yeah, that's uh, that's a comic book mm. group. Yeah, the Times. Like, no, uh, like Morris Day and yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no, confusing. How about the Die Tie Ins? The Die Tie Die. No, Die Tie Ins. No, that's a lot. That already confuses me. Uh-huh. Mm, the title. Yeah, I, I feel like you're missing something. Like, what is the title? <laughs> is, um, it, yeah. Best band ever. The okay. title. You have the title. You have the title. Okay. This is kind of fun. Data science. Hmm. No? No, I'm not feeling it. You're not feeling that. Mm-mm. Okay, this is your last one. It's my favorite. Ready? Hit me. Dietary onions. That is my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> that is my favorite. All right. All right, moving on. So the Ditalians, or dietary onions, formed in 1965 and were heavily influenced by the Motown sound. They had some early success, even getting the big O basketball legend Oscar Robinson to bankroll them for a time. Oscar Robinson's support totally makes sense, geographically speaking, since he attended school at the University of Cincinnati. 
Go Bearcats! In Schoenfeld's book, he details an owner of a tuxedo store that supplied the band with their outfits, introduced them to Robertson, that resulted in a record deal with a small label called Saxony Records, and the group went to Nashville for a recording session. You ready for some foreshadowing? Oh, yeah. Lay it on me. So guess who produced those sessions at the ripe age of 23? Uh, I got one. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. What? No. Now, why would you guess that? I don't know. We seem to be on an NBA legend train. I thought maybe there was another connection. You did mention foreshadowing at 7-2. Kareem cast a large shadow Mm. both fore and aft. Very true, but no, sir. First of all, Kareem was only 18, not 23 at the time. The man who was then called Lou Alcindor was still on the freshman team at UCLA. Now, I'm talking instead about Dale Warren, the musical genius that will figure prominently in this series. But for now, we'll just mention Dale had an eerie early connection to the members of the Italians. So the band scored a local hit from those Saxony sessions with the song Philly Dog, New Breed in 1966. But national success proved elusive. Still, the band kept growing bigger, adding a horn section that included Jerome Derrickson on sax and, of course, Princess Hearn and her sisters on vocals. They got a short deal with Mercury Records, but it was Princess's older brother, Clarence Campbell, that would reintroduce the Italians to Dale Warren several years after his initial session with the group. You know, so this seems like as good a time as any to dive into the complicated figure that was Dale Warren, a man who everyone seems to praise effusively while simultaneously acknowledging the demons that lurked within. We will discuss Dale Warren and his genius right after this break. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! So before the break, we were getting ready to dig deeper into the creative genius behind 24 Karat Black. Toby, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Mr. Dale Warren? But Warren was a complicated figure for sure. Part Disney villain, part mad genius, with an uncompromising vision. Dale was born in 1943. His dad was a concert pianist. And his aunt was Ramus Gordy Singleton, who was married from 1960 to 1964 to a guy you may have heard of, Barry Gordy. Ah, Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown Records. And that certainly did not hurt Dale Warren's opportunities in the music business. But... Opportunity is wasted without talent, and Dale had that in spades. Well, speaking of talent, there's no way that we can mention Barry Gordy's name without discussing what this man has accomplished. Okay, so you mean songwriter of hits like ABC and I Want You Back for the Jackson 5 or Shop Around for the Miracles? No, actually, I was talking about something else. Okay, so you must mean the fact that he's responsible for signing uber-successful acts like The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, Temptations, Four Tops, Gladys Knight and the Pips, 
and your favorite artist of all time, Stevie Wonder. Well, I'm happy you mentioned all of those accomplishments. But on top of all of that, Mr. Gordy inspired Motown, the musical, which is one of my favorite musicals of all time. It was a different type of show in that the audience was all dressed up and ready to sing, dance, and participate. Absolutely amazing and inspiring. Tell them how much singing and dancing and participating did you do here? All of it. All of it. All of it. (laughs) All of it. All right. Well, you know what else must be amazing and inspiring besides picturing you in a musical, even though you're not part of the cast, is having Barry Gordy as your uncle. Oof. But you know what? That has to present equal parts opportunity and tons of pressure. Dale Warren did two things with it. He created beautiful music and he drank. Mm. And according to a lot of reports, he did both really well. Yeah. Well, all right. For now, let's focus on the first of those two things and discuss the projects that he worked on. Warren was a conservatory-trained violinist. His violin skills were put to good use as a strings arranger for Motown Records. He worked with Supremes, other groups, and several labels before landing at Stax Records. At Stax, he composed music for Billy Eckstein, the Barkays, Staple Singers, and Isaac Hayes. Warren is well-known for his orchestration of Isaac Hayes' Walk On By from his 1969 album, Hot Buttered Soul. That song has been sampled over 100 times and is definitely a classic in hip-hop circles. Here's Stax Museum director Jeff Koleth on Dale and Isaac Hayes. Stax caught lightning in a bottle, and this is the genius of Al Bell, tossing Isaac Hayes the keys and saying, go make the record you want to make, and he comes out with Hot Buttered Soul, which is the work of a musical genius. To me, is the the pinnacle of Stax Records' homegrown creativity, production ability, and so on. Well, who's involved with that record? Dale Warren's involved with that record. As a general rule, any song that has been sampled that many times is a certified classic. Every time I hear Isaac Hayes' version of Walk On By, my mind automatically goes to Notorious B.I.G. track, Warning, off of his debut album, Ready to Die. That song is a masterpiece. And here's Jeff again on Dale Warren. He thought that they could do it all. And so I think 24 Karat Black comes in as part of that. It comes in as a project of Dale Warren, who was well-respected and who had brought the company some success and had done a lot of great work with The Emotions and John Cassandra, who was another artist that, you know, it just kind of comes in in that post-68 era. And then obviously the stuff that he had done on those three Isaac records to Hot Bird and Soul, the movement, and to be continued. It's speculated that Dale Warren might have done more work with Isaac Hayes, specifically some ghostwriting on the Shaft soundtrack. Regardless, his success with Isaac Hayes and other Stax artists gave Dale some credibility. And with that came the opportunity to take some chances and pursue his own unique artistic vision. So let's hear what Zach Schoenfeld had to say about that vision. Dale Warren harbored this dream of fusing classical music with soul, creating this new hybrid of music as a vehicle to express his own his own views about poverty and, and about the ghetto and, and, and about the ways in which Black people were oppressed in, in the inner cities in, in the time in which the ghetto album was recorded. And 24 Karat Black kind of became the vehicle for this musical expression that he had been looking for. He met these musicians when they were in high school. They were a high school band known as the Ditalians from Ohio. And he kind of, he took them under his wing. He trained them. He completely transformed their repertoire. He taught them to to perform his own material. He was kind of the mastermind behind this entire album. But he was also 
he was also a very troubled person. Oh, Toby. Oh, we got trouble. Right here in River City. With a capital T, and that rhymes with B, and that stands for booze. Which is the second thing that we mentioned that Warren did well. Drinking. Yeah, unfortunately, there appeared to have been a price for the musical genius that Warren possessed, and that was his alcoholism. Well, in Schoenfeld's book, he quoted Warren's daughter, Tori Gray, as saying that he never went anywhere without his bottle of beef eater gin, but stated that although he was an alcoholic, he was a high-functioning alcoholic. And this is what Niambi still had to say about that. He always had a little bottle of gin in his pocket. Always. He always had a little pint in his pocket. Always. But he was so good at what he did, nobody thought anything about it. Because he could do all of our jobs. He could sing my part, her part. In fact, he's on the album, but you wouldn't know it because he doesn't take credit except for what he wrote. He's on the album, he's singing. He's singing on God Save the World. Regardless of how high-functioning one can appear, there's no debating that alcoholism takes its toll on one's physical and mental health, not to mention all the added stress on your loved ones and those around you. You know, sometimes people use alcohol as a way of dealing with pressure and anxiety in social situations. It appears that Warren was an introvert, and this was true for him. What started off as a coping mechanism became a crutch and a dangerous one. Despite his demons, Dale Warren was talented and driven. And with his industry success, he was ready to bring his vision of music and life in the ghetto to fruition. One problem, though, he needed a band. Which brings us back to the Dietary Onions. The band was touring the music circuit in Cincinnati and surrounding areas and eventually made an appearance at a frat party in Ann Arbor. This is where Dale began to see his vision in the flesh. He took the band under his wing and began to mold them into what would become 24 Karat Black. And let's keep in mind, most of the talented musicians were still teenagers. Can you imagine managing a group of teenage musicians? Two words. Huh. Justin Bieber. What does that mean? I don't know. He was a teenage musician. And look, man, isn't mentioning the Biebs? It's just good for ratings. Just roll with this, please. We're not going to stoop to such levels, okay? Our listeners know and deserve better. So we will not mention BTS or old school acts like NSYNC or even New Kids on the Block just for the sake of getting ratings. Okay, fine. I also won't bring up what happens to teenage musicians eventually. Like, you know, how sometimes they go from boys to men. Uh, uh, uh. But in all seriousness, can you imagine managing and creating with a dozen or so teenage musicians, making sure they all got to gigs on time, dealing with their parents? Ugh. Oh my God, it's just like a musical version of an AAU coach. I don't even know if I have the patience, man. That, that's, that's too much. You know what else? I know you know what else takes patience. You ready? Hit me. Mawedge. Oof. Lord. <laughs> and being married, did you catch that reference too? Little? Yes, I did. I did. Mm-hmm. And being married for over four decades must absolutely mean you have the patience of a saint. So let's hear now from LaDonna Austin, the wife of 24 Karat Black bassist Larry Austin, because she is about to drop some wisdom here. I mean, mostly what I'm curious about is tell me your origin story. How did the, how'd you meet and how'd that all happen? How old were you? When I met Larry, I was uh, 16. We became real good friends, hung out together. You know, he was doing his music thing then, not with the group at that time, but he was playing music. He was originally, Larry started out playing guitar. 
then he transitioned to being a bass player. But yeah, we met it in 10th grade. Then we kind of separated for a couple of years. We didn't see each other. We met back up um, in 1970. And then we um, started hanging out, got married in 1971, and were together for 45 years until he passed away in uh, 2016. Wow, that's amazing. So we had a, a good, long life marriage. Do you have any words of wisdom? Yeah, words of wisdom. I just let him be him. 45 years is a long time, so. Yeah, I just let him be him. And, you know, it, it worked for us. And he let you be you? And he let me be me, but it worked. He was a musician. My field was medicine, but Larry wanted to have balance. And so he said, our opposites made it work. That's very cool. We're blessed to have four children, eight grandchildren, and eight great-grand. So we have a big family. That is very cool. So, Tom, you think think the missus should just let you be like Landana did? I'm just not going to answer that question. I mean, LaDonna was present for a lot of the band's early developments. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm assuming you knew Dale Warren. How would you describe him? I did not know Dale real well, but as far as I know, he's, he was uh, wonderful at what he did, especially when he put this album together and everything. And he seemed to have been a great person. Like I said, I didn't hang out with him at, you know, as far as just us hanging out together and everything like that. But he just seemed like he was a great guy. And from what I, you know, the couple of times that I did have an encounter with him at the rehearsal or something like that. But from what I understand from everybody else and from Larry, Larry really liked him and respected him. The band was good when Dale found them, but nothing less than perfect would bring his vision to life. And just like your analogy of coaching AAU, that means practice, practice, practice. So now we're talking about practice? Practice? We're actually talking about practice right now. Not the game. Not the game. Not the game, but practice. Yes. Yes, indeed, Mr. Iverson. We're talking about practice. Also, they are who we thought they were. Oh, boy. So let's hear from 24-karat black vocalist Niambi Steele about just how rigorous those band practices were with Dale in charge. He was a perfectionist, and plus he had Isaac Hayes to prove who he was. You know, he didn't need us. He did not need us. He needed the dream. So he had the feeling that we could do it. And we were given the mantle of that responsibility. And don't fuck it up, basically. So, you know, (laughs) he's coming from a lot of success. He was a classically trained violinist, pianist, all that piano that you hear, that's all him. That piano is beautiful. Princess Hearn would describe it this way. Yeah, it was intense. I mean, all day, all night, you know, because you had to lay everything down, every single track, you know. Oh, it was exhausting. It was intense. It was military. 1,400 hours, you better be a chow, and then you better try to get you some sleep, and then you <laughs> And when we were on the road, it was like a boot camp, you know. It was chow time. It was get some sleep, and we were up all night, and then we sleep all day. 
you know, because all night we were in the club, you know, so that kind of life, you really didn't have a life. <laughs> Slowly but surely, 24 Karat Black started to take shape. For as rigorous as it was, the musicians appreciated the tutelage and the experience. The discipline and focus allowed all of them to get better at their craft. Here's a little bit more from our interview with LaDonna. So you sat in in some rehearsals, and we've heard some interesting stories about what those rehearsals were like. From your experience, how would you describe it? I would say it was a, a great bunch of guys coming together with a lot of different opinions, a lot of different ideas. But in the end, they kind of all kind of meshed and everything kind of came together. Of course, Princess Hearn was awesome lead singer, but they had the background group was awesome as well. And then you had this group of awesome musicians. To me, they were before their time. They were a group of musicians that should have been destined for greatness. I mean, in my opinion. We share that opinion, by the way. Should have been destined for greatness. You know, for whatever reason, just the cards didn't um, pan out the way I would hope and the way, you know, I'm sure all of them did. But, you know, some of the rehearsals, uh, like I said, the ones that I were in, I wasn't in a lot. They came together and they put things together. So Larry had felt that he was a, a new day. I think that he felt that group was the group that was going to take them to the top, you know, and his aspirations and his dreams were going to be fulfilled with that group. And so he and he put all his the rest of his time, his talent, his passion into to that and and making his craft better. I know for a fact that he became a better bass player as time went on. He was a great bass player in 24 Karat, but I mean, he put so much time and effort. I would he would sit in our our living room and just play, play, play and and just got better and better and better because that was just his passion and when I would go see him on stage, you know, it was just like a, a sense of pride. I just see how much that he'd improved and mm -hmm. how much he loved playing his music and how they all came together. That group gelled together so well. I mean, so well. In our next episode, we're going to explore the evolution of 24 Karat Black and the album that will become Ghetto's Misfortune's Wealth. We'll hear some crazy stories about life on the road, find out what happened to the band when Stax Records went under, and get a glimpse into what a live performance by the band must have been like. Well, you know, maybe we'll have an Elvis sighting, and maybe we'll talk about that time that Dale Warren did a movie with O.J. Simpson. You can't make this stuff up. Yeah, yeah, you know what? You can't make up for lost time either. And unfortunately, we are out of time for this episode. So we will have to continue the story in the next episode. Until then, as always, thank you for listening. I'm Joe Watson. And I'm Toby Braswell. We'll catch you next time for Riffs on Riffs. Keep listening. Huzzah. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.